remain standing and open your Bibles. We're again in John's Gospel. Picking up this week with the last section of John 19. We'll begin in verse 28 and read through the end of the chapter. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. John chapter 19. Again, starting in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this. Your word, truly, it is light and life. Would you help us now as we open it and consider it? Here we see, Lord, the, the dying lamb. We need your help to see and to hear, so would your spirit be at work today causing that very thing. Or take us from darkness to light and life. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So many things in life generally remain incomplete. We work, we strive, we toil, and then we die. Ecclesiastes says it like this in its opening statement. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. What does man gain by all the toil 
at which he toils under the sun. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. You, you too, your life is like a mist. Vanity. Under the sun because of the curse, the writer of Ecclesiastes realizes the futility, the endlessness of work, and yet it's futility. There are so many things like this in the world, uh, great works of art that have gone unfinished because of death. The Adoration of Magi, unfinished because Da Vinci died. Charles Dickens, I didn't know this until I was looking around for things like this, but he started a murder mystery, the mystery of Edwin Drood, but he died before the murderer was outed. Never know. He, he didn't finish. The song Free as a Bird was not completed by all four Beatles because, as we know, John Lennon was killed in 1980. I could go on and on and on. Mozart's Requiem, he was writing his own, and then he died before it was complete. I think all of these are great illustrations and great ways for us to begin to frame up a little bit of what is going on in our text. Last week we saw these monumental accomplishments of Jesus. So in light of our incomplete lives, we're invited to see the completion of Jesus' work on the cross. The final stamp he places over his life. We, like the rest of the world, will leave with unfinished business. When we die, we will not truly be dumb. And yet here from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, we hear it is finished. Complete. In his worst possible moment of agony, just before his death, he proclaims a statement of glory and triumph. And victory that is finished, Jesus says. He, above and beyond anything that we can possibly do, has fully accomplished the work that God gave him to do. We noticed details last week. We saw Jesus going outside the camp, not because he deserved it, but he went outside to be a curse for us. We saw the sign written to the world in three different languages. Every language known to that entire region Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, here he is. Here is your king. We zoomed in to see this, this woven garment that was laid at the foot of the cross. We see Jesus, our great high priest. We saw the reversal of Eden where God clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. And here Jesus is stripped and put to shame and hung on a cross. We saw the care of our Lord for his mother at death. Today we turn to the very end of his life, but we do so remembering what Jesus told his disciples back in John 12. Do you remember it? It's one of his truly, truly statements. Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Life through death. Fruit coming from what looks like an end. This dried up seed dropping into the ground, producing much fruit. That's exactly what we're invited to see right here at the death of our Lord.
I don't know about you, but more and more the cross is a huge encouragement and comfort to me. Yes, it is a horrifying death. Yes, it is cause for mourning that the greatest person who has ever lived was killed on a Roman gibbet. Yes, it's terrible. This week, in the face of mourning for our brothers and sisters at Covenant in Nashville, such a a senseless and evil, tragic thing. Three nine-year-old children. Three faculty and staff killed. What What are we to do in the face of something like that? And the cross gives us a place to look. Do you think Jesus is unacquainted with violence? <laughs> he knows it very well. He has been hung on a cross. Remember that Jesus has finished and accomplished the work of salvation so that we might have hope. As he often has done throughout his work, John wants us to notice details today. In the word of God, we're invited to hear, to see, and to smell. Here it is finished. See the blood and the water flow and smell glory and death. First, we are invited to hear it is finished. And 28 and 29 after this, Jesus, knowing all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. All had been accomplished. This text is um, absolutely packed. There's probably not one phrase in the entire passage that I read earlier that doesn't have a connection to the Old Testament. The entire thing is saying, here he is. He is the fulfillment of all the hopes of the entire scripture. He is hanging on this cross right here. Every single detail has already been given to us. All you have to do is have eyes to see. That's exactly what John is telling us. Do you have eyes to see? He is fulfilling everything. Last week, again, we we read Psalm 22. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Today's text, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. Even in death, he's fulfilling and accomplishing scripture. In this moment, we're to see Jesus completely obeying the will of the Father. He had fulfilled the will of the Father. The true and better David is here, right here in Christ. The king who fully submits himself to God, not just a little bit, not when it's okay, not when it just benefits him, but when he lays down his life for his people. That's exactly the kind of king he is. He's even obeying to death. What about this thirst? Why why would Jesus subject himself like this? Why would John zoom in on his thirst? Remember the woman at the well? In John 4, we read, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's the one who is thirsty. 
The one who is thirsty on the cross is the one that promises that he will be a, a life spring of water, living water to anybody who drinks of him. That's the one who became thirsty. Do you, do you see the irony? He became thirsty so that we might drink of him. He endured this so that we might have life. Again, in John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here on the cross, our, our Lord says, I thirst. But he offers us rivers of living water. So much so that it fills us up and it says flows out of our belly into a dry and barren world. Jesus became thirsty so that he could let us drink freely of him and never thirst again. He agonized on the cross so that rivers of living water would flow. And he even points us to the detail of the stick they used to hold the, the sour wine to his mouth. It, it's a hyssop branch. Glorious in detail. If we remember Exodus chapter 12, take a branch of hyssop and dip it into the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin with hyssop branch. Psalm 51, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. It has a storied tradition in the people of God. They always used hyssop to paint blood. And here hyssop is at the Passover. And here's Jesus, the dying lamb. And here's a hyssop branch. He's putting all these details together in one place saying, pay attention. Know what's going on. The lamb of God is dying. Jesus told Peter that he was willing to drink the cup of God's wrath. Remember, he said, put away your sword. I'm not going to win like that, Peter. How is he going to win? He's going to win by drinking the cup. The cup of judgment and wrath. And then in verse 30, we read one of the most astounding things in all of Scripture. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. The Passover Passover lamb had died. There's a sense in which fallen creation itself is finished. There, there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, this is the end of the world. And the beginning of a new one. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has completed his mission with a bowed head. Our Lord dies it's really interesting in Greek. This is one word, telestai. It's derived from the, the root telos. It's where we get our word telescope. It's, it's got an aim. It's got a goal. It's got a purpose. Jesus is essentially saying this. The goal and purpose of everything has been wrapped up. This is the highest moment in human history. The perfect son of God dying to save sinners. Finished, complete, Hebrews chapter 10. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering 
of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One time. 1014, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified once and for all. No animals will do. Not the sacrifice of bulls and goats. Finished, Jesus says. What does this declaration of Christ do for us? When we hear from Jesus, it is finished. What does that do in us? Do we actually believe it? What would it look like to see the greatest work ever Accomplish what would it look like for us to, to truly believe that? What exactly is finished? And again, I've already said some of the eschatological things that I think about in terms of time. I think this is the end of an age and the dawning of a new one is coming in the resurrection of Christ. But also I think there are... Look, this is endless... You could preach all of God's word and frame it under it is finished. But I'm going to give you just three. One, propitiation. The word comes from uh, a a translation of the mercy seat. Okay? Here's what's finished, guys. Propitiation. The mercy seat. So what is the mercy seat? It's the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the furniture that God had them make. And this is the most holy of those furnitures. It's, It's... This box, a wooden box, and it's covered in gold, and it's got angels on the top looking down into it. Angels of destruction, their eyes gazing in, and and what's inside? Do you remember what's inside? The broken tablets, Aaron's rod that budded, and a little jar of manna. And all three of these represent man's sin. Do you remember the heart of Israel with the manna? We're we're sick of it. All of these represent, Aaron's rod that budded represented an utter lack of trust in God. An utter lack of faith in Him. So you take this old dead rod and suddenly it buds and leaves come out everywhere. And then obviously the broken tablets. Sin, sin, sin. So once a year, the high priest would take the blood of a lamb and come into the most holy place and smear, take blood and and pour it out on the top of the mercy seat and smear it. So between the eyes of the angels and all the sin that was in the box, they would only see blood. That's it. That's one thing that's finished right here in the person and work of Christ. That's Um, That covering is where we get the word atonement. His covering is complete. All our sin in that box with the warring angels looking down, ready to do violence against us, which we all deserve. And he comes in, not with the blood of an animal, but his own blood and smears it all over the top, covering for our sin. That's one thing that he is talking about when he says it is finished. No more blood of bulls and goats. My blood. To redemption. This word comes from the marketplace, specifically the slave market. When someone is bound in slavery, another could come and buy them out. They would pay the, the ransom price. This is redemption. This is what God does in Exodus. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great 
acts of judgment. I am coming to get my kid. That is what God is saying to his people. I'm coming to get you. I'm buying you out of slavery. The Bible again and again and again refers to this in terms of sinners. Sinners are in slave, slavery to sin. John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You're like, hey, I'm not a slave, but the Bible says you are. The Bible says that I am too. We're born as slaves to sin. That is why Christ came. He came to redeem us out of the slave market of sin. The wages of sin is clearly death, but Ephesians 1, 7, in Christ you have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. His blood being poured out is our ransom price. It is finished. No more blood needs to be shed to pay for sin. When he says it is finished, it's over. It's his blood. It's done. It's complete. Three, reconciliation. So there's nothing else that can redeem us. There's nothing else, lastly, that can reconcile us to God. This idea comes from the family on the cross. By his blood, we are reconciled to the heavenly father through Christ. The Bible teaches that we were alienated to God. That's what sin does. It separates us from him. The the father wants reconciliation for his people, so he sends the son, 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. God loves us, so he sent the son to reconcile us. There's a broken relationship with our father, and he's, he's the one who does something about it. He's the one who finishes the work. Again, let me, let me just ask you, which one of these things can you improve upon? We started by talking about unfinished masterpieces of art. Which one of you would take just a a few brush strokes to the Sistine Chapel? Ah, there's this one area that's kind of weird. It's where the hands are coming together. I just want to put some lightning in there, like a little zap. Would you do that? No, it's utterly silly. Think of your family, favorite family uh, photo. Would you take that photo and then like Photoshop somebody else's face into it? This glorious picture that fills you with memories. Would you do that and then hang it on your wall with some dumpy looking face on it? No, it's full. It's complete. It's good. Would you come up to the... <laughs> you would not do this. Would you come up to Michelangelo's David with a hammer and chisel? Ah, the nose is just a bit off. I'm just going to tap some off here. Would you do that? What, what, about, what about Jesus and his complete finished product and us saying it's not enough? It's not enough. I need to improve upon it. I can improve upon it by my good works, by my appearance. I can improve improve upon it by all these things. Know that silly, you would never, ever, ever do that. You wouldn't dare. But somehow we think we can add to the perfection of Christ with our own perfection. And it's really just silly. This is 
This is the way we are with Jesus, though. He says from uh, the cross here, it is finished, and we live our lives like, no, it's not. It's not. May God be gracious to us and let us rest in his finished work. Second, we get to see the blood and the water flow. It's really interesting. Since it was the day of preparation, he's going to beat that drum at least two more times. It's the day of preparation. He's saying lambs are dying, lambs are dying, lambs are dying. Look at Jesus, look at Jesus. It's the day of preparation when all those lambs are being slaughtered. But then his attention goes to this detail about breaking of legs. They didn't want the bodies to remain on the the cross too long. He says, it's the Sabbath day. That should really catch our attention. This is the Sabbath day. This is a high day. This is a a culmination day of God's work and his rest. Here in the death of Christ, the world is offered rest. It's a high day. It's a day of rest. In the death of Christ, you and I are invited into rest. Here, this Sabbath and the Passover week, a high day, a day to truly rest. Jesus died and was buried so that the likes of you and me might find rest in him. So in this moment, the Jews come up and they say, hey, let's break their legs. Let's, let's, get, this, let's get this going. We've got to have them down off the cross before this high day of rest. This would have been a very common thing. There's a, there's a term for it that, that's very specific. So the, we've already talked about this, but the cross is an agonizing way to die. And one of the reasons they perfected it is because they wanted it to be agonizing. The longer you live, the better the officers did their job. They wanted it. Sometimes it could last days. It depends on the strength of the victim and if you could keep them out of shock. And so if you wanted this to go quickly, you didn't want them breathing. And so you would, they would take a, a, a rod of iron or a, a mallet of some sort, some kind of bat, and break the shin bones of the victim. Sometimes that would immediately put them into shock, stop their heart. But really what it was doing was preventing them from catching a breath. To break their shin bones so that they couldn't lift up anymore to catch a breath. This is a way to ensure that death happened quickly. It says they go to one guy and they do that. Then they go to the one on the other side of Jesus and they do that. And then they come to Jesus and they find that he's already dead. It's very interesting that John would give us these details. It says this, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness, for his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Again, every line, every phrase, again and again and again. He's saying, it's him. This is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He's right here. He's hanging on this tree. This Jesus is the very son of God. Believe him. We're given this detail to, to know for sure. John is telling us for sure he is dead. They didn't break his legs. They pierced him in the side and blood and water come pouring out. He was dead. By the time John is writing this, 
it's late date, and he already knows people were denying the death of the Lord. And he's saying, they pierced him with a spear, and I watched them do it. He died. He died. John also wants us to, to look at the blood and water flowing out. He wants us to see the significance. He wants us to remember all the sacrificial system. He wants us to see this blood coming out of the Lord, flowing out for us. Remember the time. They're killing animals everywhere. It's, this is the time of preparation. This is when all the lambs are dying. And he said, here's the Lamb of God. See his blood pouring out blood and water. Blood and water. Again, John 3, 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Yes, literal water and spiritual water. Cleansed by Christ. Again, John chapter 4, we, we just read this with the woman at the well. Who's asking who for a drink? The living water is pouring out of our Savior. John's point in showing us this gruesome detail is this. We need both. You and I need both. We need the blood of the Lamb poured out for us. The sacrifice to atone for our sin, but we also need the water to fill us and to cleanse us on the way. Jesus gives both. His sacrifice isn't just about blood. It is also the life-giving water that we need. And all through John, he's saying, you're thirsty, and I know you're thirsty, and you don't like to admit that you're thirsty, but here's who you're thirsty for. You're thirsty for Christ. John is telling us, I was I was there. I watched it. This theme of witness has been throughout John's gospel. It's important. He said, he's saying, I saw all these things happening. He's showing us that all these details of the Old Testament are being lived out right here on the place of the skull. Psalm 34, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. We've already pointed to Exodus chapter 12 in the Passover where they take a lamb. You're, you're not supposed to take a lamb with any deformities, no broken bones, no skin lesions, none of that stuff. Perfect. And right here, John is saying, here's our perfect lamb. They didn't break, they didn't break his bones. Zechariah 12 verse 10, they will look on him whom they have pierced throughout. John is saying, look. Look, look, it's him. So we have this cry. We, we have seen the blood and water. And lastly, John wants us to smell the glory of Christ even in death. Verse 38 and 39. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea comes on the scene, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that if he could take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he took his body away. And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, and they came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. This is really remarkable. Joseph, this Joseph is in all four gospel accounts. We know that he's wealthy. We know that he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. He's but he's looking for the kingdom of God. He's a disciple, but he, he hasn't been loud. And some of us might be quick to throw rocks at Joseph and be like, man, you should have been loud. Well, where's Peter right now? Where are the rest of the, 
the disciples right now. Yeah, I mean, it might be really easy sometimes to criticize the, the, the faith of someone, but you don't know what's going on in their heart. John says he's a disciple. He hasn't outed himself yet, but he loves the Lord. He comes to get him. And we're told that Nicodemus is there with him. This is the only gospel account that tells us this detail. But I, I don't think um, this is a, a side item detail for John. I think this is kind of a main point. Here is the new creation. At the, at the very tomb of Jesus, we see light and resurrection breaking in. Nicodemus is here. Do you remember where his story begins? Where, where does he meet Jesus? He, he meets him at night. Just like his life. It's dark. No light is breaking in. And here he is. John, John is... So good with details. He, he reminds us that it was, it was dark back there for Nicodemus. But here he is with Jesus, the light of the world. Dark cannot win. Light shines in the darkness. John began his gospel. But the darkness could not overcome the light. He said, that's what's happening with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was in at this point. John is telling us, get, get ready for life. Just like Nicodemus has gone from death to life, he has changed the way that he views Jesus Christ. He's also, he's setting us up. He's saying, get ready. Life is already breaking in. It broke into Nicodemus, and it's about to break in in the resurrection itself. He's setting us up. Look, Nicodemus is here. And he, he used to not believe, and now he has been given life. Now he believes. So these rich men bury Jesus like a king. We're meant to see his royal robe. We're meant to see his crown of thorns. We're meant to read in Greek, Aramaic, and Latin. And hear the, that he is the king. We're meant to hear the cry, it is finished. We're meant to see him here buried like royalty. You think John has a bone to pick? Here, here is the eternal king of glory. Here he is. He's buried like a king. And it, also this, I mean, Isaiah 53, 9, and they made his grave with the wicked men and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, both the wicked that he died with and the rich man in his burial. Every single illusion or detail, it's like again and again and again, it's him. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen with the spices and as was the burial custom of the Jews. Now, where he was crucified, this should not be a shocker. There was a garden. We'll talk more about the garden next week. There was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there, bound in cloths just like he was as a baby. Another way that John wants us to know that we're being set up to look for glory is we're back in a garden. It's where it all started. It's where the first Adam failed and every single one of us failed in him. And here at the resurrection, we're back in a garden. It's like, look at the glory of Christ. 
Man fell in a garden. Man rebelled against God in a garden and sinned and plunged us all into sin. And John keeps telling us, he keeps reminding us, beating the drum over and over. There was a garden nearby with a tomb in it. Behold the man. Behold your king, the second Adam, laid in a garden tomb. Dying when all the lambs die, there Jesus is laid, hear his cry, see blood and water flow, smell the scent of 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Can you imagine the overwhelming smell? Can you smell the glory of God? Is the aroma of Christ real to you? Let's pray. Lord, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, you have been anointed with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloe. Lord, would we see the beauty of this text and know, truly know the finished work that you have accomplished salvation for us. Forgive us for the ways that we continue to live like it is not complete, like there is more work for us to do. Lord, give us hearts of repentance and faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.